Please stand for the reading of Scripture. From Ezekiel chapter 37, 1 through 14, hear now the words of God. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. These are the words of God, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Wow, what an incredible text. We could almost just stop there and have our sermon for today. What a bizarre vision Ezekiel has. Filled with stark language, stark imagery, unforgettable narrative. And from whom would we expect this vision but Ezekiel? A reluctant priest and a reluctant prophet, but a priest and prophet nonetheless. The book of Ezekiel is carefully put together, and we really cannot broadly arrange it in the three main sections. The first 24 chapters is a scathing denunciation of Judah and Israel for their unfaithfulness to Yahweh, the God of their fathers. The middle section, 25 through 32, contain Ezekiel's oracles against the foreign nations for their own sin. And finally, the portion in which our text today is contained, chapters 33 through 48, presents the climax of the prophet's vision, which is the glorious and miraculous restoration of God's people to their land, back to their temple worship, and which also serves to prefigure and foreshadow the later messianic restoration to be fulfilled in Christ and the Christian hope 
of resurrection now and in the eschaton. It's an amazing book. Ezekiel lived and ministered among the exiled Jewish community near the irrigation canal called Kabar, north of the ancient city of Babylon. He was exiled from Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 597 B.C. His name means, May God Strengthen, an appropriate name for a prophet called to proclaim a message of uncompromising judgment and later a message of a restoration for God's sake, not Israel's. Ezekiel is a fascinating figure among the biblical characters. What kind of man sees visions like this? Dr. Al Mohler likes to imagine the scenario in which Ezekiel is applying for a pastorate in a modern church. (laughs) He says that when you read Ezekiel, you begin to understand that he would be the nightmare of every pulpit committee. The bane of every church session in search of a new pastor. Someone so dangerous and eccentric that wouldn't even be allowed to spend much time even with the youth group. This man was an oddball. He was a weirdo, an anomaly, even among his own. Modern readers find Ezekiel and the style of his message bizarre. Few can handle his frequent denunciation, his unconventional antics, his repetitive style, and his bewildering array of topics. Because of this, some scholars have taken to subject Ezekiel's writing to psychoanalysis, and have concluded that the bizarreness of his style is really rooted in a pathology arising from early childhood abuse. In his commentary on Ezekiel, Daniel Block notes that, quote, one cannot deny the uniqueness of his ministry, but to attribute this uniqueness to some kind of psychopathology misconstrues the, misconstrues the profundity of his message and the sensitivity of his personality. His prophetic experiences, his symbolic actions, his oracular pronouncements were derived from encounters with God that affected his entire being, but were all directly related to his ministry. What other prophets spoke of, Ezekiel suffers. He is a man totally possessed by the spirit of Yahweh, called, equipped, and gripped by the hand of God. He is a sign a portent carrying in his own body the oracles he proclaims and redefining the adage that the medium is the message, end quote. That was Ezekiel. This was a man from God and yet a man with visions more eccentric and extreme than any we find in Scripture. And this is the word of the Lord. These visions came to Ezekiel from the hand of the Lord and this particular vision that is in focus today, perhaps the most famous of them, is indeed, I am going to suggest to you this morning, a sort of parable for our times. A church that is situated and worships in the midst of a dying culture. And some would even say a culture that has already died. A kind of relic of a former civilization, now baking in a lifeless cultural desert, as in a valley of dry bones. Ezekiel was unconventional. He used unconventional methods, he received unconventional visions, he used unconventional language, and he combined all of this in an unconventional style. 
But we are living also in an unconventional age. So how is this a parable for our times? Ezekiel prophesied during a time of great confusion. In 597, the Babylonians had exiled Judah's king, Jehoiachin, only 18 years old at the time, and on the throne for only three months, along with several thousands of its leading citizens. We read about that in 2 Kings. Ezekiel was among their number. He was probably about 25 years old. And the political situation was extremely complex. A Judean king was among the exiles, Jehoiachin, but the Babylonians had appointed a puppet king to the throne in Jerusalem. That would be Zedekiah, uh, Jehoiachin's uncle. So the people of God were in a state of great cultural, political, and spiritual bewilderment. They had been warned of pending doom in the face of their covenant unfaithfulness, and now the walls of their pretentious edifice were being torn asunder before their eyes. Does this in any way describe what we see before us today? I would invite you to reflect on that question with me. If there's any one image from Scripture that comes most spectacularly to mind as a fitting description for our times, it has to be the image of the valley of of dry bones. The civilization bequeathed to us from the aftermath and the debris of modernity and enlightenment philosophy may very well be said to be our valley of dry bones, a cultural, intellectual, and spiritual valley of death, if you will. Bones so dry they do not even rattle. At the beginning of the vision, we see that this was a valley full of dry bones, very dry and very many. For background, we need to keep in mind that the ancient Hebrew concern for God's commands uh, dealing with the burial of the dead, the careful treatment of the deceased, even the respect for the body. To see such a massive number dead, for bodies to decay and exposure to the elements, for bones to desiccate and to lie on a valley floor. This is a sign of utter death, utter destruction, utter degradation. It can't get any worse. This is absolute defeat. And God called him to enter into that valley. And as he did, Ezekiel had to be careful not to touch any one of those bones, lest he avoid, as a priest, becoming ritually unclean before the Lord. He was in the midst of death, and the death was as deadly and dead as death could ever be says Dr. Muller. It is a frightening vision. Uncleanness and humiliation and despair reigned there. So as we think of this scene, we should call to mind the covenant curses in the Old Testament. Remember Deuteronomy 28, 25, and 26. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. Here are the children of Israel being prepared even to enter the land of promise. Here as Moses in his final years was being still used of God to prepare them. They were being told that if they obey the Lord, they will be blessed and, they, and that no army in the world will be able to stand against them. But 
if they deny the Lord and disobey his commandments, if they ignore the statutes, then God's judgment will come upon them and they will be a public reproach among the nations. They will be carried away. Their army will be defeated and the birds of the sky will eat the flesh off the carcasses. And lo, it has happened. And there they are among the Chaldeans in exile. And their king Jehoiakim is in the midst of them. Verse 37 of Deuteronomy 28 says, And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Verse 45, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you, Till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Later in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, Moses, who is now in Moab, looking forward, also says this to his people. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of his great anger? Then the people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and with great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. And as it was on the day of this vision, of this vision that Ezekiel had, a valley of dry bones. We live in an era of spiritual death, do we not? We live in a culture that is living on the residue of Christian commitment and Christian inheritance, but a culture who has total disregard for God and his holiness. Moral rebellion now substitutes for the pursuit of goodness and truth in our land. The notion of the need for personal and national holiness before a holy God is a laughing stock in our day. Nihilism grows and will continue to grow as we slide further into this valley of death. An old English preacher in his own day comments that the representation given us in this vision is the moral condition of our world. Bones, dry bones, unburied bones, very many of them. What a crowd of suggestive thoughts seem to be called up by this picture. A bone, who likes to look on this dishonored relic of life? What a recoil do youth and beauty feel at being told that to this complexion they must come at last. But the bones the prophet saw were on our, spirit, uh, on our spiritual interpretation, yet more painful to contemplate. Why? Because they represented the bones not of a dead body, but of a dead soul. Scattered members of the immortal part, God's image defaced, corrupted, broken into dust and fragments. Furthermore, to complete the picture of death and desolateness, the prophet adds, and they were very dry, They had not only remained a long time in this state, they were bleached and crumbled in the sun. And all vestige of the human thing was gone. The application of this lies, says this preacher, upon the surface. 
God made us men, but sin has changed us into, changed us into skeletons. Observe further, the vision seems to point to the utter shamelessness of the unconverted state. The bones were in an open valley. They may be those in sin, in, uh, they may be those that sin in secret, those who defraud and plunder by means of locked up in secret ledgers, who concoct their mendacious schemes in chambers dark, as dark as the unsunned and unfrequented sepulchre. But the many hardly care to hide their iniquity. They leave pestiferous breath of corruption to go up from the valley and seem to glory in their own shame. And how unblushingly does vice walk our streets today and lying enter enter into our commerce and sinful and foolish jesting dishonor our entertainments and the offer of cheap excursions affront the sanctity of God's holy day. And they justify themselves who do such things. We're in a land of the dead. My wife recently shared with me a quote from Anthony Esselin's recent book, Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture. Thank you, honey, for doing that. Uh, It is quite pertinent here. Esselin says, let's get straight to the point. We no longer live in a culturally Christian state. We do not live in a robust pagan state either, such as Rome was during the Pax Romana. We live in a sickly sub-pagan state or metastate, a monstrous thing, all meddlesome, all ambitious. The natural virtues are scorned. Temperance is for prigs. Prudence is for, stick, are for, sticks, is for sticks in the mud who worry about people who don't yet exist. A man who fathers six children upon three women and now wants to turn himself into a woman, attracted to other women, he is praised for his courage. Justice means that a handful of narrowly educated and egotistical judges get to overturn human culture and biology at their caprice. He says we are not in partebus infidelibus, that is, we're not in the company of infidels. We are in partebus Insanibus, in the company of insanity. Eslin says that we have not only lost our souls, we've lost our minds because we've lost our souls. We've gone completely mad. But that's out there, right? That's out there. What about us? What about the church? Yes, praise God. Many are healthy and faithful, and may God continue to bless them. But some are, frankly, more dead than alive. We see churches in decline and dissipation, ready to abandon their work and their worship at the slightest resistance. We see denominations in confusion and compromise. We see congregations lacking spiritual energy. Absence of biblical knowledge is widespread, and theological conviction is often waning. Unless we poke out our chest, friends, and feel proud that we who remain in the church have not succumbed to this cultural and theological degradation, let us not forget that the village of Hebrew exiles living next to the Kedar Canal, north of Babylon, a generation earlier, were worshiping at the temple in in Jerusalem, but in their syncretistic ways, thinking everything was fine. Now for them, the temple lay in ruin, and many in the younger generation among the Hebrews in Babylon had no memory of temple worship 
or sacrifice. The provisional presence of God was cut off entirely. And like the culture, the soul of the church can dry out and wither. Yet the remnant, the remnant long for restoration by the hand of God because he's promised it. Who alone can bring life from death? But some in our day offer solutions that are in more keeping with our postmodern mood. They say we need a sort of Christianity that is marketable. What I'm saying today isn't marketable. The marketers know what sells, and the marketplace gets to define what has value. There's a dangerous and misguided trend that thinks the gospel needs marketing. We have become obsessed with marketing the gospel instead of living it and preaching it. Years ago, a Times of London article published uh, uh, an article that suggested using a 750-page customer service manual published by the McDonald's Corporation for its employees as a way of turning around church decline in Great Britain. Somehow I don't think that's going to work for them. Passing off a burger with a smile may get you a return customer in the drive-thru, but passing off an evaporated, sterilized theology, but this time with a smile isn't going to make up for what is lacking. McDonald's may sell a lot of Big Macs, but the gospel isn't a Big Mac, and souls are not hungry customers. They're dead. (laughs) We need the brutal honesty of Ezekiel's vision in our airbrushed, fake-smile world. Let's call it what it is. Death is dead. Let's not sugarcoat it. Hopelessness is hopelessness. Let's not call it anything else or spin it for the win or for the sale. We look around us, and in many places we see dry bones. But to the question posed to Ezekiel, can these bones live? What do you do with a question like that? Son of man, can these bones live? What do you say to that? This is complete desolation. You're talking about dry bones in a valley. Multitudes. But what does Ezekiel know? Does he know the miracles wrought by God through the prophets Elijah and Elisha? Surely he does. But those resurrections from the dead were of persons whose bodies still had flesh on them. Their life having just passed. Their breath having just gone out of them. This is altogether different. Ezekiel doesn't know which bone is connected to any other bone. How many bodies are there here? How many lives lie here in ruin? We don't know. How does this all fit back together? No one knows. This is a bizarre vision and followed with a question that has no precedent. How do you answer that question? How will Ezekiel answer? With speculation? Often our response to the strangeness of God's ways reflects an attitude of presumption. Or maybe even cowardice. Perhaps doubt, fear, and the like. Ezekiel could have said to the question, sure, why not? In some kind of apathetic tone. He could have said, of course they can't. In disbelief. But the remarkable thing is that sometimes in some situations like this, our entire theology gets reduced down to the answer to one question. Remember Jesus with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi 
when he turned to them and he said, but who do you say that I am? Everything in that moment comes down to the one question and its answer. When Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he didn't get it almost right. He didn't get it kind of, sort of right. He didn't get it just about right. He got it right on the money. That was the right answer. And the Lord said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Of course, it's a revealed knowledge, but he got it right. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin got it right. Stephen, likewise, got it right. Martin Luther, before the Diet of Worms, got it right. He got it just right. Certainly, Ezekiel knew Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none other that can deliver you out of my hand. Ezekiel knows the sovereignty of God, and this is the key to the right answer. He answered in a way that affirmed the holiness and sovereignty of God and put the question back on the only one who could truly answer it. O Lord God, you know. Al Mohler comments on this, and he says, Ezekiel's answer represents utter trust mixed with humility and wisdom. Think about that profile. His answer to the question, if God can bring life out of death, is an answer that represents utter trust mixed with humility and wisdom. This, my friends, Christian, this is a paradigm for how we must answer the same question in our day. In our own exiled existence, looking over a valley of death, we face a postmodern age of spiritual death and cultural disintegration and churchly confusion. Let's not sugarcoat that. That's the reality. Let's call it what it is and get to work. And the Lord God would ask us this question, Son of man, can these bones live? How in the world are we going to answer that question? You have answered it in part by being here today. Your presence today is a partly an answer to that question. In fact, if these bones cannot live, then why are you here? Paul makes that argument in 1 Corinthians 15. What's the point? This is not a sporting event. This is not a spectacle. It's not a pastime. It's not a spectator sport. We are the redeemed people of God coming for the, before the Lord of glory, summoned to His presence by His command to be made anew. Because without Him, we are dead. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In him, we are being restored to the land of promise. Do you see the picture coming together? Though we see only the rubble of a dying culture and the signs of death all around us, but don't forget that God loves paradox. We're on a pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem, a journey made possible by the pierced and resurrected, death-defeating, life-giving Christ. Why are we here Out there is a valley of dry bones. Oh God, you know that these bones can live. But how? We preach to the dead. We preach to the dead. Remember, Ezekiel's response was to put the question back on God, and God commanded him to preach, to prophesy over these bones. Preach to the dead. Now that's 
a bit strange. We've already imagined that Ezekiel would be the nightmare of most, most pulpit committees, but this congregation of dry bones would be the nightmare of a preacher. Preaching to dry bones? This is, the, this is really faith and obedience made plain. Lord, you said it. I trust you. I will do it. And he does it. But still, doesn't it strike you as silly? Insane? Who would do this? Only God's prophet who trusts and obeys. Because God knows. Can dry bones hear? Apparently, yes, sometimes they can. And so we preach to death. It's interesting in the image of the, uh, the vision here, we really have the reversal of the decomposition process. When God calls forth to life these bones, it's in reverse order of how they, the order in which they would decay. The bones come together. The framework is established. The sinews come back on. The flesh come back, comes back on. But yet the process isn't complete because the breath isn't in them. There's a sign of life, but no real life. But yet, isn't a sign of life a promise? This is a promise of life. This is uh, reminiscent of the two-stage process that we see in creation. Think back to Genesis 1 with me for a minute. When God's Spirit hovers over the waters and God calls forth creation by His Word, what does He do? The first three days, He structures the world. He divides. He structures. The last three days, what does He do? He fills that structure with life. This is the way God does it. This is the way he saves you and me. Think about Adam. What does he do with Adam? He brings him forth from the dust of the ground, builds his body, and then breathes the breath of life into him. We're not just stuff. The very spirit of God is in us, giving us life. And that's the answer to the question. And it's all done not for Israel's sake, but for the vindication of God's glory that has been defamed in the world. That's why he does it. He does it for his glory. Earlier in chapter 36, Ezekiel brings this word from the Lord to his exiled people. He says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. I'm not doing this for you. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. And he goes on later, he says, and I will um, remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the promise of hope. The hope of Israel is the hope of the church. This is our hope. God will act for his name's sake, not for ours. And by the purity of his name, we are made new. It's a glorious gospel. And here the prophets come together like a beautiful symphonic harmony. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, new heart, new spirit, new life from the hand of God. Grace and mercy to an adulterous bride. God will be glorified and he will bring his rebellious people into that glory 
through humility and faith and resurrection and spiritual renewal. What happens when churches forget what it means to be the church? What do you do with a biblical promise like this of the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth right now, but you don't see any advance? I turn on the news, I don't see any of this. What do you do in a season of spiritual sterility and impotence? In a valley of dry bones, the church, our church, desperately needs continual refreshing wind of spiritual reformation. Now, the youth among us need to embrace the baton carried by their parents that is now being passed on for succeeding generations. Young men and women, will you be faithful in building new families and households and cultures that honor and serve the Lord in a pagan land? Will you be brave and stand for the gospel when it means giving up your comforts and dreams, even the American dream, whatever that is? Oh, dear Christian, don't be deceived by the naysayers. God is at work here as he was in the valley of Kedar and as he, as he, as he has been from of old. Creation itself was a restoration. Just as he has promised at various times and in many ways, he is renewing his creation and bringing all things together in Christ even now. Even though you may not feel like he is. He is taking these dry bones and putting flesh on them and breathing the breath of life into them for his own glory. He has spoken and he has done it. We must believe that the Lord will do it again. He takes pleasure in it. God is restoring his people and we are called to be faithful. Though still in cultural exile, our inheritance is sure. Let me read in closing uh, from 1 Peter chapter 1. And in, the, in light of what we've discussed so far and this vision from Ezekiel and the, the resurrection hope that God gives his people in exile, consider the words that the apostle Peter, who walked with the Lord Jesus, resurrection uh, in person, Uh, says to the churches in Asia Minor in his day, to the Christian churches. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Listen to this. And notice he calls them exiles. These Christians are exiles. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, what? To be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Are you grieved by various trials? Take heart. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, that would include Ezekiel, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ, of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. And he goes on and quotes from Isaiah, the prophet, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but what the word of the Lord remains forever. And he says to these Christians, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Lift up your heads, Christians. This is good news. This is our news. This is what we live for. Live. Therefore prophesy, says the Lord to Ezekiel. Prophesy to these dry bones. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live, and I will place in you, place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, you and you alone bring life out of death. You bring beauty from ashes, strength from fear, victory from defeat. Our hearts are full of resurrection hope in Christ this day. O Lord, in him we know that those dry bones can live. Our hearts are often hard. Our worship is often frail. We are unfaithful and deserving of death. But our hope is in Christ, the risen Savior. Restore us, O God. Raise up your church in a godless land. Raise up men and women and godly children for your glory, that we might see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Grant us peace and contentment and spiritual maturity that can only come through faith in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.